Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. And uh, at this time, the walls are finished. And now the people start to protect the city of Jerusalem. And many of the, the homes have already been built. But inside the city, there's still a lot of work to do. They're still clearing out the debris. And it's necessary to protect the city because the enemy that tried to hinder the work and stop the work, the rebuilding of the walls, they would love now to destroy all the work that God has done through his people. And thus the message tonight is protecting God's work. The walls were completed, the gates were in place, and the enemy was ticked off about it. They were not happy about it. But Nehemiah and the people's work wasn't finished yet. Now, he, he had to do, like Paul said, doing all to stand. We have to do all that we can to stand in that day. And, you know, you can look at this personally. God has done an, an incredible work in the believer's life, in your life. You know, look back and see where you were, where you are now, and what God has done, what he's doing, and, and, and he's not finished yet. But you know what? We are one day going to stand before God, and we are going to reap the rewards for this life as a believer. And we want to receive the full reward. You know, we don't want to go in there and just, is this all I'm getting? You know, because we didn't protect what God has done for us. We didn't protect the work of God in our life. Nehemiah had been dedicated and he had been steadfast in building the walls and fighting off the enemy's attacks. Now he had to be just as steadfast in doing everything that he could so that we, as John, Second uh, John 8 says, we do not lose those things, notice, which we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Not speaking about salvation. But the things that we did as a believer, the works that we did as a believer, our motivation, why did we do it? Again, we're not, we don't want to lose those things that we worked for that we may receive a full reward. It was time to get the people together, the community together, and organize them so that the people could enjoy the kind of life that God wanted them to have. God had great things in store for Jerusalem and his people one day, his son would walk through the streets of Jerusalem and he would teach in the temple and he would be crucified outside the city walls. Chapter 7 here teaches us some important lessons on what to do to protect the people and the work that's been accomplished. The first thing Nehemiah does is appoint leaders. Let's begin now with verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. Then it was when the wall was built... And I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station, and another in front of his own house. So after the wall was finished, Nehemiah puts up the doors and the different, at the different gates, and he appointed certain men to protect the city. First, he appointed the gatekeepers. They were the watchmen. 
They were the ones who took care of the wall. They were on guard duty all around the walls, all around the clock, letting those on the inside know what was going on outside. And if an enemy of, of some kind of danger approached, they'd sound the alarm. They watched day and night. It was a 24-hour job. The standards for this job, they were high. But we're going to see as we go along, some of the rules that were set up weren't being carried out the way they should have been. Then Nehemiah appointed two kinds of guards. Verse 3 says, guards or watches, those to patrol the walls at specific stations and those to keep watch near their own houses. Now, since many of the people had worked on on, uh, areas of the wall near their homes, Nehemiah now challenged, challenged them to guard those areas that they had built. With guards at the gates, watchmen on the walls, the city was safe now from outside attack. All of this has a message for us tonight. If God's people, you and me, if we don't protect what we have accomplished for the Lord, the enemy will come in and he will take it. He'll take over. We need guards at the gates. And that is faithful, watchful men and women who won't allow false Christians to get in and take over the ministry. They will protect them. They will protect the ministry from gossip, from slander, from sin, from backbiting and and other types of sins. We need watchmen on the walls to warn us that the enemy is coming or when he's coming. Christians need to guard their lives, their homes, their marriages, and their children so that the enemy doesn't come in and take them captive. It's when God's servants are asleep, complacent, and overconfident that the enemy comes in and plants his counterfeits. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 25, as the workers slept, his enemies came and planted weeds among the wheat, and then they slipped away. That's why we have to be awake, we have to be alert, we have to watch, and we have to pray. Because while we're asleep, the enemy is scheming. He's planning, he's making plans on how he can rip you off. We live in a day when people want to agree with everybody about everything and they don't want to make waves. But as Christians, you have to remember you are different. The Bible says you're a peculiar people. But God means that in a good way. You're peculiar because you're not like the world. You're not of this world. You don't love the world, hopefully. You're different. And you have to test everything by the word of God. There are many religions out there. But there's only one Savior. And as Acts 4.12 tells us, there is still no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Anything that changes that gospel message or weakens our enthusiasm, our excitement to get that message out is of the devil. And it has to be opposed. We have to fight against it. We need guards at the gates. We need watchers on the wall or the enemy will come in and he'll take over. The guards of the wall were to be very concerned about who came and went inside the city walls. And then after appointing gatekeepers and guards to guard the city of Jerusalem, Nehemiah appointed singers. The spirit of praise is the spirit of power. 
Again, Acts 16, 25 and 26. And we're all familiar with the, with the story. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Again, the power of praise. That's the symbolism there. The power of praise. Psalm 147, verse 1 and 3 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds. There's healing in praise. There's power in praise. Do you know what this means? It means we should be a rejoicing group of people. But joy is so often missing from the church today. In our worship, in our serving, in our giving of Bible study and prayer. The psalmist said in Psalm 100, verses 1 through 4, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord, notice, with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, and it's so right on. He said, if joy were more general among God's people, God would be more glorified among men. The happiness of the subjects is the honor of the sovereign. I wonder how God feels when he sees his people come in, you know, heads down and, oh, another Sunday. I can't wait till this is over or what I got to do when I get out of here. Psalm 150, verse 5 says, Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy. Psalm 47, 1, Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. You're more than conquerors, Paul said. You're victors. You're champions. You're winners. Instead, we act like victims. Psalm 81.1, sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. You know what the word aloud means there when he says sing aloud? It means to emit a stridulous, which means making a shrill creaking sound, to make a stridulous sound, to scream, to utter, or emit an acute piercing sound. Psalm 59.16 says, but I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy. Now, I believe there should be a balance. There are those who do scream and loud and hang from the chandeliers when they praise God. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, for he let everything be done decently and in order. But I believe there should be emotion. There should be passion in our worship. Jesus said in Mark 12, 30, he says, we, you shall love the Lord God, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, put your heart and your mind and your stroll, your soul and your strength into your worship when you sing. Sing like you mean it. Sing like you're saved. There are people who say, well, you know, and I'm, I'm not an emotional person. Well, I think it just depends upon what you're excited about. Why is it we think that enthusiasm for God, which is the most worthy thing of, in all of the universe, has to be low-key? What do, you think about, what do you think God thinks about our low-key worship? Do you think God looks down at us and when we worship, He says, oh, you guys, way to go. Keep it inside, my children. 
Yeah, keep it quiet, you guys. As a parent, how do you feel when your child runs up to you with a big hug and a big kiss and says, I love you? Yeah. Doesn't happen that often, does it? (laughs) Oh, you must want something. We love it. So does God. The church should be made up of a happy group of people. I mean, we'll laugh at a good story. We'll enjoy a good potluck. But worshiping God isn't such a, a great joy many times. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Paul describes the sign of a spirit-filled Christian when he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The word psalms here means to praise. The word hymn means to ascribe perfection to deity. We're to sing about how wonderful he is. This will bring joy into our life. A pastor had this motto on his wall. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. When you're walking in the will of God and you're in the center of his will, you are having fellowship with him. And so you will have joy in your life as well. So now we have the gatekeepers and the singers are appointed. But that's not all that's that's needed. Levites were also appointed. They were ministers. God calls ministers. Proverbs 18, 16 says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great, great men. And it's really true. If God has called you to be a minister, he will make room for you. A minister means servant. If God has called you to be a servant, and he's called all of us to be servants, he will make room for you. That is, he will give you a place to serve. Now, Nehemiah mentions Hanani in verse 2. Hanani was one of Nehemiah's fellow Israelites. He's the one who came to Nehemiah back in chapter 1 and told Nehemiah about the bad condition and situation in Jerusalem. Nehemiah already knew this man. That's why he said, I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. Now, did Nehemiah give Hanani this position because he was an educated man or he had charisma or, or you know, he, was, you know he, he had seniority? <laughs> no. He was one of the men placed in charge over Jerusalem because he was a faithful man and it says he feared God above many. He feared God. And the fear of God is sorely lacking in the church today. Hanani was faithful. You see, it's all about character and not ability. We see in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, the disciples said, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, not everybody is called to be a Nehemiah. But some of us can be Hananis and Hananiahs. And work with God-given leaders to help get the job done right. That's what God is looking for. Faithful, God-fearing men and women who will have the courage and the conviction and the dedication to serve Him no matter when or what. Can your overseer count on you? Can your fellow brothers and sisters count on you? Are you faithful? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required 
How about that? It is required in stewards. The word stewards means overseer. It is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Education is great if you're faithful. Giftedness is great if you're faithful. If you have skills, they're great if you're faithful. But they're not worth much if you're not faithful. You may be the best employee at work. But if you have a bad absent, uh, uh, attendance record, it really doesn't do you that much good. Faithfulness is required to be a servant of God. Each entrance to the city was watched during the day, according to verse 3. And at night, when anything could, ha- when anything could happen, all were to keep a watchful eye. Each one was to watch at least his own household. You see, God holds us responsible for at least our own households. Lord Jesus said in Mark 13, 37, And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. One word, watch. That should be the attitude of every Christian. Now, not all of the building inside was completed yet. It was possible that a, that a man might become interested in building his own house, but forget to watch. The whole spirit of building the walls and the gates had been with a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. We definitely need both of them to do the Lord's work. Verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. One of Nehemiah's projects after finishing the walls was to establish a citizenship. To increase the population there in Jerusalem. And the need for this uh, increase is given in verse 4. He said, the people are few. Verses 5 through 7. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, uh, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, uh, Nehem, and Bena, and uh, several more as you go down the list there. But we find this same genealogy here here in Ezra chapter 2. Why would God give us the same genealogy two times? Psalm 112.6 says this, The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. I like that. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. God will never forget us. It's like God is saying, I know the people. He says, and I want you to know that I know them. Because they're important to me, God says. And he's listed their names in one place and then made a second copy. It's as if God says, you may not find these people or these names interesting, but I do. Because these are my people. Now, there's several more genealogies that are found in Scripture in Genesis 49, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, Nehemiah chapter 3, and Romans 16, and Hebrews 11. They all are listing those who were faithful. Now, to us, they're probably not anything more than just a long list of a bunch of hard-to-pronounce names. 
But think of it. God remembers each person and he records their name in the Lamb's book of life. Psalm 147, 4 says, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. I mean, think of that. If he, can, if, if he knows the numbers of the stars and he, and he has a name for each one of them, how much more important do you think you are to him? Now, we don't know all the people in this genealogy, but a couple of them are well-known. Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and then Jeshua in verse 7, the religious leader. And together, they, they brought the first group of exiles to Judah after Cyrus allowed them to return to Jerusalem. These leaders were, the, were leading figures in Haggai and Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zerubbabel, he was from the royal line of Judah. From Joshua descended 14 successive generations of high priests. Let's look at verses 8 through 38. Now, we're not going to read all of verses 8 through 38, but let's begin with verse 8. The sons of Perosh, 2,172. And, and then if you go through verse, uh, the, the rest of the chapter, it lists all these and the number of men that were there. In other words, 8 through 38 lists Jews who were laymen. This is a long and important list. The first part of the list, that is verses 8 through 25, lists 20 people from whom then living descendants came from. The next list, verses 26 through 28, is 20 towns where the returning exiles settled. The introduction to the census suggests that these were the towns that the families of these people had originally come from. Look at verses uh, now uh, 39 through 42. The priests now are listed here in verse 39 through 42. The priests were the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. They were responsible for taking care of the temple altar and parts of the feast. David had organized the priests into 24 families, each responsible for two or three weeks, a, a tour of duty in the temple. Nehemiah's list mentions only four of these families, probably the only ones who returned. Now, according to the Talmud, these were later uh, reorganized into a new set of 24 rotating groups using the original Davidic names. Nehemiah's list, just over 4,000 priests, about a tenth of the total census. Okay, now look at verse 43. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, and he names those there and, and the number. The Levites were the descendants of Levi, one of the original 12 patriarchs. Levites also served in rotation, and their job was to help the priests that descended from Aaron. Verse 44, the singers, and now he lists the, the names and the number of the singers. The singers, like the gatekeepers who came after the singers, were taken from among the Levites. Their job was to help in the temple worship. And then in verse uh, 45, notice the gatekeepers are all listed there and their name there, so we won't read them all off. Look at verses 46 uh, through 56 now. Beginning in verse 46, uh, it, says, it's, it mentions the Nethanim, all right? And it talks about all of the Nethanim and all of the families. The Nethanim were temple servants, or you could call the Nethanim ser temple servants. They were a group of people of non-Jewish background who served as temple servants in Old Testament times. They helped the Levites, just like the Levites were assistants to the descendants of Aaron. What they did was perform menial chores as cleaning the temple, carrying water and wood to the altar, scrubbing utensils that were used in the sacrificial ceremonies. 
the Gibeonites, remember they had been appointed to this role after they deceived the Israelites at the time of the conquest. Verses 57 through 60. Now there you have it says, the sons of Solomon's servants, and they're all named and listed there. This group was closely connected to the previous one. They were a common total that were serving for both. 61 through 65, and these were the ones who came from Tel Melah, Tel, uh, Tel Harsha, and it goes on and talks about those who came from these different places. Those, uh, these were the ones whose ancestry was questionable. Look down at 61, and look what it says there. And these were, okay, the, it gives all the names, but they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage where they were uh, whether they were of Israel, the sons of, okay, so they couldn't, they didn't know where they were from. They didn't know their ancestry. These were in two categories, laymen in verse 61, and then those who claimed to be priests in verses 63 and 64. But the situation of the priests was very serious because you see, it involved matters of ritual purity and contamination for the whole people. A decision was made to leave these men out, those mentioned in 63 and 64. Why? They couldn't prove their lineage. That meant they couldn't perform any of the duties of a priest until their case could be decided by submitting it to a sacred casting of lots known as the Urim and the Thummim, mentioned in verse 65, which was used to, to, to learn the will of God. The census ends with the total number of Jews to which are added a number of other totals, including those of servants, singers, and animals in verses 68 through 69. The the final action taken by Nehemiah in his attempt to reunite, or I should say to unite and strengthen his, his earlier work and to prepare for the tasks to come, What he did was provide for those who would now be working in the temple. Look at verses 70 through 73. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 uh, priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nithinim, that is all of those that, that were there, and all of Israel, notice, dwelt in their cities. Here in verses 70 through 73 was encouraging worship. Now the Jews have a community. They have leaders. People and leaders together can make a state, but it doesn't make it a godly nation, as we know. It can be a community, it can be a nation, but it doesn't make it godly. It takes worship to make that state into a godly nation. John Stuart Mill wrote this, The worth of a state in the long run is the worth of the individuals composing it. But the worth of the individual depends on their relationship with God. And this involves worship. We are saved to worship God. We're going to spend eternity worshiping God. And if the godliness of the people goes down the tube, guess what? So will the morality of the nation as we see in our own country today. Ezra 2, 68 through 70 tells us 
that some of the Jewish leaders gave generously to the temple ministry. It says some of the heads of the fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work. But Nehemiah tells us that the governor and some of the common people here in verses 70 through 73 also gave offerings to the Lord. It was only right that the leaders set the example. And what was given in verses 70 and 72 would be valued today at over $5 million. That was quite an offering. Quite a donation for the temple service. And Nehemiah... His, he, he took care to provide for it. It shows that even though he was a layman, he didn't just care for the secular things, but for the spiritual things as well, the spiritual well-being of the people too. And this is what we see in the rest of the book of Nehemiah. So far, we've seen a lot of great leadership qualities in Nehemiah. But here we see four more things in Nehemiah. First of all, he realized the need for new leaders and he worked to find them and to appoint them. Second, he, he, he knew new leaders needed care and good guidelines in order to be effective. And even though he was assigning the work, he was still in charge. He was assigning work, he was still in charge. Third, he knew that God's work needed financial support. But all of this money would have been useless if it wasn't for the God-appointed ministers at the temple, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the helpers, which were the Nethanims in verse 73. It was now the seventh month, which was October through November, when Israel was expected to celebrate the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. So this was the perfect time for Nehemiah to get the people together to honor the Word of God, to confess their sins, and to dedicate themselves and their work to the Lord. What started with a concern for the people in chapter 1 led to construction in chapter 2 through 3 and then to opposition in chapters 4 through 7 and now it was time for consecration in chapters 8 through 12. When serving the Lord, we have to always do our best. But without His help and His blessing, even our best work won't last. Nehemiah knew that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Psalm 127.1. Nehemiah knew that there was a great need for the people to come back to the Lord and to turn away from their secret sins that were grieving God. Even though Nehemiah was the official representative of a pagan king, he did everything that he could to glorify the God of Israel. And one of the key lessons that we can learn from chapter 7 is that people are important to God. When God wanted to take the next step in his great plan of redemption, he called a group of Jews to leave the place of exile and go back to their own land. And he encouraged them. He gave them encouragement from the prophets and the leadership from people who feared God and wanted to honor God. The Lord didn't send a bunch of angels to do the job. He used everyday people who were willing to risk their futures on the promises of God. In closing, God is still calling people today to leave their personal little world and follow Him by faith. We, the church, are living in a time of disgrace. 
and there are ruins all around us. And the rubbish has to be removed from our lives and the walls around our heart have to be rebuilt. David said in Psalm 11:3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The answer is simple. The righteous can rebuild what's been torn down and start over again. If you think that an enemy victory is final, that means that, you know, he won, I'm out, I'm done, then you've lost your faith in God's promise. His promise is. Because there's always a new beginning for those who are willing to pay the price. And remember, the Christian life is a series of new beginnings. This chapter also reminds us that God remembers his servants. He knows where we came from. He knows what we've done. He knows what family we belong to. He knows how much we gave and he knows how much we've done for him. And when we stand before the Lord, we're going to have to give account of our lives before we can receive our rewards. And I think we all want to be able to give a good account. Another lesson that we must learn is that the Lord is able to keep his work going. The first group of of Jewish exiles left Babylon for Judea in 538 B.C. And in spite of all the difficulties and delays they experienced, they rebuilt the temple and they restored worship. Eighty years later, Ezra and another group returned. And 14 years after that, Nehemiah arrived and rebuilt the, the walls and the gates. During the days of Zerubbabel, God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to give God's message to his people. You see, here's the point. No matter how discouraging our situation might be or get, God is able to accomplish his purposes if we will just trust him and do his will. John Wesley was right when he said that God buries his workers but continues his work. We must never get discouraged. Finally, and most important, we have to be sure that we know that we're in the family of God. No matter how much the priests that we read about who didn't know their their genealogy, they didn't know their lineage, they didn't know what family they were from, no matter how much they argued and protested, I am of the family of you know, Aaron, I am from from that priest, I am from that line. He says, not being able to prove it, They couldn't enter the temple and they couldn't serve at the altar. God is not impressed with our first birth. What he wants is for us to experience the second birth and become his children. And if you're not sure of your spiritual genealogy, you can make sure that your name is written down in heaven. How? by receiving Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Father, we thank you so much for this great chapter, Lord, and the lessons that we have in it, Lord, and the things that you teach us, Lord. And and God, help us to be learners, God. Help us to be true disciples, that is, students, students of the Word, students of, of of the Holy Spirit as He speaks and teaches us and leads us and guides us into all truth. And Father, we pray for the work of your Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, God. Lord, help us to remember that we are important to you, God. You know who we are. You, You know where we're from. 
You know what we've done and how much we've done and how much we've given. You know everything about us, God. And that's because you love us. And you want to do so much more for us, God. The heavens are open if we are willing to leave our own little world and open ourselves up to the heavenlies. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you would like to know that your bloodline is Christ, the bloodline of Christ. And that his blood is flowing through your veins. That can only happen when you give yourself to Christ. When you turn your life over to Jesus. And you allow him to come into your life. And his life flows through yours. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And this is time for you. Decision time to choose which family you want to belong to. The lost family, the, the, the family that, that's in the kingdom of darkness and destined to hell? Or do you want to step out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His wonderful light and change your destiny from hell to heaven? That He would write your name in the book of life. As we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat, make your way down the aisles to the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.